want to start uh, with a story that some of you have been around True Life for a while, but especially if you've been to Honduras, you may remember. And so if you're going on the Honduras trip in June, you should especially listen closely to this story. John tells me over half of our team has never been before. So uh, there's not just spiritual value, but there's practical value in this, okay? So as we're preparing to go on the trip, uh, we'll do some team meetings, and John is an excellent leader. Andy's an excellent administrator. They'll line everything out, and basically, you just mainly need to follow the script, okay? Because if you go off script, there could be some problems. So, uh, part of what we do in preparation is, as far as exchange money, the Honduran currency is limpiras. Uh, you'll uh, give some money, you know, turn it online or whatever beforehand, and then when we get down there the first day, they will have exchanged the money and have it waiting on you. That's how it's supposed to work. But one year, on one of the trips we took to Honduras, I mean, we went through that process, but there was a young man that I'll let him remain nameless. Um, he, he actually was with, there was a few people from another church with us, and he was, he was from another church, but, you know, he'd been at the team meetings, he'd exchanged some money. But when we got to the, the airport in Tegucigalpa, Instead of just kind of waiting and, you know, we're going to have lunch and then we'll exchange the, give them the money they've turned in, the exchange of it there, he just, he kind of wandered off from the group and he decided to go exchange some money for himself. I'm not sure why and I'm not sure who he ran into and I'm not sure how he got talked into this, but he went and exchanged some money, except instead of changing do exchanging dollars for limpiras, he ended up exchanging dollars for pesos. And I, let me just tell you, pesos are not going to do you any good in, in Honduras. And so uh, from there on out uh, on that trip, and for some people forevermore, this young man is now known as peso. <laughs> right? This is how life works, right? You do something like that, uh, you get a nickname. And, of course, all that's in good fun, and, you know, we kid around with each other, and hopefully we do that appropriately. And if I've ever gone overboard with you, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll go ahead and publicly apologize. But, you know, basically what we did with him is we labeled him. And if we're honest in, in life, we're all carrying around some labels. We're wearing some labels. Maybe we've labeled ourselves. Maybe other people have labeled us. And, you know, there's some things we just kind of laugh about. It's all in good fun. But there's other things that stick with us. And those labels begin to create a self-image. And that begins, I think, in some ways to guide our lives. I mean, maybe the labels were positive. Maybe, you know, you were told when you were growing up that you were athletic or that you were smart or that you were good looking or that, you know, you were going to be a great success. And that can be a good thing, but maybe it's a bad thing because maybe it uh, turned into pride or, or maybe it uh, set up uh, some self-expectations that you couldn't live up to and maybe what was intended to be positive has now become a weight that you're carrying around. Or maybe that you were given, maybe you were given a lot of negative labels. Maybe you're told you're no good, worthless, a failure, that you're dumb or you can't do things. Or maybe really you were rejected in school. Maybe even your parents 
verbally abused you. And those labels, just there's a loop that plays in your mind. Like I said, maybe they're coming from within. I mean, I've given myself some negative labels at times. Uh, in my mind, I've called myself a failure, hypocrite, worthless. Probably not just in my mind out loud. I've called myself an idiot before, which I still occasionally do that. But, uh, but the thing about it is none of those are really stuck with me. That's not really what I think about myself maybe in a given moment. But some people, those labels have stuck. And that's how you see yourself. And the reality is that it's harmful. And so this question that was submitted, how can I have a healthy self-image and not feel like I'm worthless? It's a real question. And I think it's a common question. And it's a practical question. This isn't like some obtuse theological question about like how many angels can dance on the head of a needle or something like that. I mean, this is real life, right? This is where we live. And so, I want us to have a healthy self-image. But I think to, we got to understand what that is. So, there's three terms I want to define up front, okay? First of all, I believe that our identity is who we really are. That's how I'm going to use that term. It's who we really are. And... As Christians, what we should believe is that our identity is given by God, and ultimately, our identity is who God says that we are. Now, of course, the world is going to push back against this and say, no, you get to define yourself. You're whoever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. You do you. You be yourself. You get in touch with the real you. You self-actualize. You get in touch with your inner child, whatever it may be. And I'll critique that a little bit later, but um, I would just say now, just raise a question maybe for us to think about. If all that's true and all that's really working, why are we objectively, factually in the middle of a mental health pandemic? I mean, if all that works, why are so many people struggling with their mental health even though they've been taught that their entire life? So our identity is who God has made us to be, who God says we are, but our self-image is who we perceive ourselves to be. It's who we think that we are. So our self-image could be accurate or inaccurate. It could be healthy or unhealthy. And then beyond just, you know, who are we, who do we think we are, there's the question of, well, how do I feel about who I think that I am? And, and, and I think that would be the self-esteem issue. So there's identity, there's self-image, there's self-esteem. Now see, the world would tell us that the key to this is you, you need more self-esteem. That needs to get built up. What I would say is the key to this is your self-image of knowing who you actually are in Christ, seeing your identity correctly. Here's what I mean. This is how I, I read or heard Josh McDowell say this a long time ago, 
and for the entire entirety of my ministry, this is how I've defined self-image. It's Josh McDowell's definition. He, he, the question is, what is a healthy self-image? He says, it's to see yourself as God sees you, no more or no less. He says, let me repeat that. A healthy self-image is to see yourself as God sees you. But he goes on to say, to do that, we have to make a commitment. It's an intellectual commitment that should be based upon evidence and convictions that the Bible is the Word of God and it is true. And this is key, this is the foundation of the, everything I'm going to say today. The conviction you need to live by is this, that the truest thing about you is what God says about you in His Word. Do you believe that? That the truest thing about you is what God says about you in His Word. We're either going to define ourselves by that, we're going to define ourselves by our own feelings, by our own emotions, by the labels that other people put on us, or we're going to define ourselves about what society uh, around us says. But a healthy self-image is seeing ourselves as God sees us, not more, not less, knowing our true identity defined by our Creator and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and living our lives out of that. So, that then leads to the question of, well, what does God actually say about us in His Word? Who am I? Who are we? What does God say about us? Let me give us this morning three statements. We're going to be in the book of Genesis, the very beginning, the very foundation of the Bible. We'll start in Genesis 1 and then go to Genesis chapter 3. I just want to give us three, three statements and then try to help us to see practically what this means in our lives and how we can actually begin to, if we're not already, living based on who God says we are and not the labels that we've collected over the years. Number one, I want us to see who does God, what's your identity? How does God want you to see yourself? He wants us to see ourselves this way. We are made by God, for God, in the image of God, which means that each and every one of us, every person, has intrinsic value, worth, dignity. We're made by God, for God, in the image of God, and that is what gives us value. That's what gives every person value, from the womb to the tomb, and not based on any outward characteristic, but simply based on the fact of the presence of the Imago Dei, the image of God, stamped uh, within us and upon us by our Creator. What's the Bible say about this? Well, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the New Testament amplifies this by saying in Colossians 1-16, talking about Jesus, that all things were created by Him and, and, and for Him. Uh, it says, all, it's Colossians 1.16, By him all things were created that in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And if that is true, that one verse defines the purpose of your life. You were created for Jesus Christ. Now, I get, I've had this happen before. Some people will push back against this. Say, I get to create my own life, my own purpose. Nobody can tell me what that is. But that's not what Scripture would say. 
But then the Bible also tells us that we're created in the image of God. Uh, Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man, literally mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, so the Bible would claim that built into the very fabric of creation is that we are made uniquely male and female. Now, we're not going to get into that today, but we'll save that for next week when we're talking about uh, gender and sexuality issues. But then it says that God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We're made by God, for God, in the image of God, after the likeness of God. That's what uh, that would claim. So what what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, uh, Christian theology would say that it means that, uh, that it involves reflection, and representation. That's what verse 28 is talking about, where God's representatives given dominion to steward his creation, to create culture, to build lives and, and, and cities and communities and civilizations that honor him. But we're a reflection of God. We're made in the likeness of God. Now, I think the best analogy is the, is the analogy of a mirror. Mirrors only reflect what's already there. Mirrors don't produce. Mirrors don't create. Mirrors only reveal. It's a reflection. Now, we lie to ourselves and tell us that the mirror is uh, showing things that aren't really there, right? You know, the mirror's putting some extra pounds on. The mirror's got those wrinkles there. The mirror has those pimples uh, there. But mirrors are actually uh, a, a, a reflection. And so, God, the the creator, made us to reflect him, to image him, uh, to show forth his glory, to represent him, to build the the earth into what he wanted it to be. And we've done some pretty amazing things, but we've also done some pretty horrible things as his representatives. See, this would say to us that we're dependent beings. See, when we go to Genesis 3 and we're going to read about the fall, we're going to see the result of us trying to live independently of God and us trying to be our own God and us confusing the distinction between creator and uh, creation. But you see, God is glorious, and the Hebrew word glory literally means weight. It indicates significance and importance, and each and every one of us is looking for glory. We want weight. We want significance. We want importance. But when we start looking for that outside of our relationship, relationship with God, we end up broken and empty, and that in and of itself is the essence of sin and the root of the problems in the world. We're created in His image to be a reflection and a representation. You see, we're the crowning achievement of God's creation. Now, I feel like I need to say this, and and, and I'm being serious. This isn't me, like, making some cat jokes or something like that. I'm not going to do that today. But, you know, some people philosophically, like PETA, put animals on the same level as people. Some people functionally, in the way they treat their pets, and I'm not saying don't be good to your pet, but some people, I mean, pets are the new humans. 
I mean, there's some places that pets are going to get treated better than kids. Which is, again, it's a worldview issue. But we are different than the animals. Because the image of God is stamped on us. We have souls. We're made in the likeness of God to reflect and to represent Him, to know Him. So this means, when you think that we're made in the image of God, it means we're personal beings who long deeply. We have desires that are given by God. We're rational beings who think. Hopefully. But I mean, your cats are not at home debating the meaning of the universe this morning. Your dogs are not at home discussing the purpose of their existence. We're volitional beings who choose. It's part of what it means to be human. We make choices. We're emotional beings who feel. You know, God is not just passive. The Bible pictures him, I don't know if emotions is exactly the right word, but, you know, the Bible pictures God being angry and, and God caring and Jesus wept and we're made in his image. We're social beings who need others, who relate to others. Why? Because we're made in the image of the triune God who's eternally in relationship with himself. We're functional beings who exercise dominion over the earth. We're spiritual beings who have a relationship with God. At least that's what the Bible says. Again, it's a worldview issue because that's certainly not the narrative of our culture. I want you to think about this. Most Americans believe in evolution. But if evolution is true... We're highly evolved animals. We're just material beings. We can't have a soul because uh, an immaterial random process can't produce a soul. We're really pretty much on the same level as the animals. You know, some people would say, well, you, you know, you take monkeys, their DNA is like 98.5, 99% the same. And so maybe we're more complex, but we're just the same. But to me, if that's true, why are we even discussing the identity issue? Because if we're just a highly evolved animal without a soul, why would we even be thinking about this? It doesn't add up. But here's what it means practically. Listen, Tim Keller preached a message about the image of God, and he, he gave an illustration. And he talked about a friend he had who's a doctor and, and who's a believer a Christian, and this went back several years to when he was a, a young man in his 20s, I guess, in medical school doing his residency, and he was doing rounds with other residents under the supervision of an older doctor and attending physician, and they encountered a case of a woman who had multiple problems, but one of her problems was is that she was depressed. And this young resident said to the group, well, one thing we could do her, do for her that wouldn't even, it's not, doesn't even involve medicine is that we can encourage her that as a human being that she has worth and, and value and, and, and dignity and try to help her to feel better about herself in, in, in that way. And the attending physician said, you can't say that. We're scientists. And science doesn't say any of those things. 
science may say that we're more complex, but science does not say that human beings have innate, intrinsic, inherent value or worth. You can't make those kind of judgment, those kind of value statements. So stop uh, spreading your religious beliefs to her. And here's the thing about it. If that worldview is correct, he's exactly right. See, one of the things, when you evaluate your belief system, your worldview, one of the things you need to do is to carry it out to its logical conclusion. And that is the logical conclusion of evolution. But I don't think a whole lot of people can can consistently live with that kind of worldview. So what do we do? We talk about self-esteem. We try to prop people up and make them feel better about themselves. But again, if you're a soulless, highly evolved animal, why are you worried about your self-esteem? That's not really what animals are worried about. I mean, think about it. Think about it. You know, kids today, in in so many cases, are, are taught that even though, you know, you're a highly evolved animal, you can be anything you want to be and you can do anything you want to do. They're often taught or or treated like they're the center of the universe. Everything evolves around them. Taught, you know, you should feel important. You should feel good about yourself. Know how special you are. But isn't there some kind of cognitive dissonance between being taught that you're just a soulless, highly evolved animal and also being taught that you're the center of the universe and you can be and do anything you want to be and do? And I think that kind of cognitive dissonance, what's it lead to? It leads to a mental health pandemic. It leads to people trying to bear a weight of creating their own reality and, and being everything they're told that they can be and, and, and uh, trying to live up to you can do and you can be whatever you want to be. And when you fall short, what are you left with? You're not given a foundation to stand on. Listen, this is the reality. Keller says this. He says, people think Christians are naive, but if your origin is insignificant, and if your destiny is insignificant, then have the guts to admit that your life is insignificant. Ernest Hemingway said, life is a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. Of course, he also committed suicide. Because who can honestly, consistently live with a worldview like that? You see, there's a choice to make. And and let's be honest and let's carry it all the way out to its logical conclusion. You can make the choice. You can have your own worldview. But if you believe that uh, everyone is made in the image of God, that means that everyone has intrinsic value and dignity and worth. Treat people that way. Which means abortion's wrong, racism's wrong, euthanasia's wrong. It means that, that, that communists, listen, there's no coincidence that every communistic society in the history of the world was atheistic. Because if there is no God, we have no soul, so there is no image of God. So here's the thing. If there is no image of God, the state has more value than any individual because the state will last longer than any individual. But listen to me. If, if we're made in the image of God... 
any and every individual human being on the face of the earth is more valuable than any state that's ever existed because we will outlive and outlast every state because we are going to exist somewhere eternally. Listen, you ever read the Declaration of Independence? This is the basis for our freedoms. This is the basis for our personal liberties. And and you take away the image of God, you take away a belief in God, what do we have to stand on? Listen, C.S. Lewis put it this way in, in, in The Weight of Glory. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals, because if we have a soul, our immortal soul is going to exist somewhere forever, right? But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Listen, if we're made in the image of God... It affects how we treat people, but listen, if we're not made in the image of God, what do we have to stand on to value human life, even to value ourselves? We're trying to create our own meaning and our own destiny, and any time we fall short, that becomes a weight we can't bear. But you say, well, that (laughs) that sounds utopian. That's true. Why is life so hard? Why are there so many problems? Well, the Christian worldview would also answer that because the Bible moves from Genesis 1 and 2 to Genesis 3, the fall, and would say, here's the second statement I'm going to make about our identity, about how God wants us to see ourselves. We're corrupted by sin, but still loved by God. We're corrupted by sin, but still loved by God. Remember, healthy self-image is seeing ourselves as we really are. So lying to ourselves is not going to help us. Saying, I'm all right, you're all right, we got it all together, that's not going to help you. You say, well, that's discouraging. All you Christians want to talk about is sin. You understand, if we see how sinful we are, but yet how loved we are, that's the most encouraging thing in the world. I mean, look at what Scripture says here. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, questioning God's word, Has God indeed said, Did God really say, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which was in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. In other words, he's denying God's word. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, what Satan wants to practice in our lives is identity theft. He said, you're going to be like God. You're saying there's a lie. There's more than one lie in here. But here's the problem. They were already like God. What do we read? They've been made in the likeness, in the image of God. He said, you know good and evil, but the problem is God didn't create us to know evil. God made everything good. He only created us to know good. It's the fact that we know evil is why life is so hard and why everything's messed up. 
He, he tried to convince them, you can be your own God, you can have it your own way, you can do your own thing. And that's the lie that's the root of all sin. It's the confusion of the creator and the creation. And it's what destroys our lives, us trying to be our own God instead of seeing ourselves as creation but loved because we're made in the image of God. But it says here, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and um, he ate. Because it's more fun to sin with somebody else, right? But notice this. I believe this is the worst moment in human history. It says, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, what does that mean? I, I don't think we can grasp the horror of this moment because we've never known perfection. Have you or I ever lived a perfect day? Have you or I ever lived a sinless day? Everything was perfect. It was exactly what it was supposed to be. They were in paradise, running around naked together. And God would come and fellowship with them. And they never fought. I mean, we don't know how long this lasted, but nothing was wrong with anything. There was no sickness or death or disease. or I don't even think they had bad breath. I mean, everything was awesome. And then in a second, everything was wrong. They fell. The creation fell. There was a process of decay that began in that moment that hasn't stopped and won't be reversed until Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom on the earth. Instead of being somewhere where nothing's wrong with anything, we're living a place where something's wrong with everything. But can you imagine the guilt, the horror, the shame? They're hiding. They're trying to cover themselves. Isn't this what we're prone to do? We're guilty. We're ashamed. We try to cover ourselves, make ourselves feel better, make ourselves look better. Verse 7 says they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Here's the good news, though. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, here's why they're afraid. What was God's word to them? The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Maybe they think God's coming to kill them. It says, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But verse 9 says, the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And he didn't kill them, at least not immediately. I mean, they died spiritually. They didn't die physically. He gave them another chance. Later in the chapter, it says that he called Eve the mother of all the living. That's grace. Here's what I want you to see. Even though they just ruined everything, God came looking for them to redeem them. That's love. And you know what? For each and every one of us, even though we've sinned and rebelled and done our own thing, 
God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God, he loves us so much that he came looking for us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're made in the image of God that's corrupted by, by, by sin. We're flawed because of sin. John Calvin used the analogy, he said, we're like a broken mirror. If you look in a broken mirror, you can still see your image, but it's distorted. The image of God is still in us, but it's distorted. But God still loves us. He went all the way to the cross to find us and to bring us back to himself. Think about it this way. You know, in the course of my ministry, I've had opportunities to visit people in jail. And while it may be a little weird to be locked in somewhere, that never bothered me. Uh, I preached in a maximum security prison in Maryland one time. That was actually one of the greatest church services I've ever been in in my life. But one time while we were on staff at a church in Raleigh, North Carolina during seminary, I had a reason to go see someone at a secure mental hospital where criminals were, were, were I mean, were kept. Or people, you know, who had done something criminal, but, you know, they were considered to be insane or, or, or whatever. And I'll just be honest with you, that kind of freaked me out. I mean, it was scary because people were just kind of wandering around and, you know, there's someone who was kind of drugged out of their minds and, you know, and it was just it was kind of a freaky experience. But here was the freakiest part of it. You know, I walk in and there's an older gentleman that kind of meets us as we walk in. He wanted to shake my hand, so I shook his hand. But once he grabbed my hand, uh, he wouldn't let go. But... And I, I really don't know what it was, and, and my description of it can't really do it justice. But there was something wrong with his hand. It was like crusty, scaly. I'm like, he has a disease. I'm going to die. I mean, I don't know what my, my arm's going to fall off. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thinking this. Now, outwardly, I'm trying to be pastoral, but uh, this, this is what I'm thinking. I'm getting some kind of rare, exotic disease from this guy who won't let go of my hand, and it's, this is not going to stop. Not that I would just ever just think about myself, but... Um, but, you know, sometimes when you're thinking about yourself, God's Spirit will bring a thought, bring His Word to your mind, will convict us. And, and, and here's the thought that came to my mind. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he who, knew, for he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And as revolted as I was by whatever was going on with His hand as He grasped my hand, the, the thought that the Holy Spirit gave me about that verse was, my sin was so much more revolting to Jesus. But he embraced it when on the cross he became sin for me and uh, bore, experienced the wrath of God so that I could be forgiven. That's how God loves us. And you see, what Genesis 3 teaches us is that we didn't just fall and God still loves us, but it teaches us that we're redeemed and made new by Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, as you go on in Genesis chapter 3, and we won't read all of it for time's sake, but you know, there's curses, there's, there's judgments uh, that are pronounced on the serpent, on the man, uh, on, on the woman. 
But notice verses 15 and, and, and verses 20 and verse 21. Verse 15, it's the first messianic prophecy promise in the Bible. Uh, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Speaking to the servant of Satan, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It, it, this is a prophecy of at least a couple of things. It's a prophecy of the virgin birth. Biologically, the seed belongs to the man. And when it says between your seed and her seed, it has to, I think, refer to the virgin birth, the coming of the Messiah, born of a virgin. But when it says he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel, you know, Jesus' heel was bruised on the cross because what archaeologists would say is that there is evidence that would show, uh, as they found, uh, you know, crucified bodies, that there was bruising on the heel. Why? Because they would push themselves up to be able... Uh, to try to breathe as they asphyxiated. And so I believe in all probability if we saw the corpse of Jesus, there would have been bruising on his heel. But in him, his heel being bruised on the cross, he crushed the head of Satan because he defeated death, hell, and the grave by atoning for our sins and by rising from the dead. Beyond that, verse 21, it says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Well, how did he do that? He killed an animal, right? Killed an animal. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. This is important. You know, one of the reasons that uh, evolution and the Bible are incompatible is because if evolution is true, there's death before the fall, which just... It is not just a problem for Genesis. You know, uh, Paul's New Testament theology of salvation is based on the analogy of the first Adam and the second Adam. You know, there's a, you got a problem there. But here's the idea. God killed an innocent animal to clothe guilty image bearers. The animal died in their place in a sense. And you see, this is the first picture in the Bible of what has been called the scarlet red thread of redemption through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That Jesus the Messiah, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, died the innocent for us the guilty. That he was slain to clothe us with his righteousness. He died to redeem us and to make us new. And it's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And this phrase, in Christ, is one of the most important in the Bible. Who, who are you? If you're a Christian, you are in union with Jesus Christ. And what belongs to him now belongs to you. And that is our identity. That defines who we are. And so God wants us to see that in Christ, we're redeemed, Romans 3.24. In Christ, we're alive, Romans 6.11. In Christ, we're gifted with eternal life, Romans 6.23. In Christ, there is no judgment because Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. He would say to us, stop judging ourselves because Jesus was judged for us on uh, the cross. That we're loved by God, Romans 8, 37 through 39, nothing could separate us from that love. That we're victorious, 2 Corinthians 2, 14. We're reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. That we're children of God, that we're one with other believers in the body of Christ in Galatians 3. 
Ephesians 1, 3 says we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what we have. You're rich in Christ Jesus. What are some of those blessings? Well, Ephesians 1, 4 says we're chosen by him in Christ to be holy and without blame before him in love. Listen, you may feel rejected by everyone around you, but in Christ, you're chosen. In Christ, Ephesians 1, 6, you're accepted. You're not rejected. In Christ, Ephesians 1, 7, you're forgiven. Ephesians 1, 11, given an inheritance. Ephesians 2, 7, grace. Ephesians 2, 10, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. 2, 13, brought near to God. According to Philippians 4, 19, in Christ, by Christ, all of your needs are met. This is who we are, made in the image of God, so we have intrinsic value and worth and dignity, corrupted by sin, but still loved by God, pursued by God, all the way to the cross, redeemed, made new in Jesus Christ, in Him. This is who we are. So, put all this together. What's it ultimately mean and how does it apply to our lives? So, I'm going to take a few minutes and finish. So, when you put all this together, what it means is, is our identity, listen to me, our identity is ultimately Found in, rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ. Who we are is defined by what Jesus did for us on the cross. Think about it this way. Galatians 6.14 says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we think about the word boast, you know, we think about bragging. And there's a sense in, in which, you know, are we going to brag on Jesus? Are we going to brag on ourselves? But it's deeper than that. Uh, boasting refers to glory. It refers to worship. But it also refers to identity. What's our identity rooted in? He says it's to be rooted in. We're to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. What's this mean for us practically? Number one, boasting in the cross frees us to live for the glory of God instead of trying to achieve our own glory. 1 Corinthians 1, starting verse 29, says that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Listen, we're glory hogs. We all want glory, significance. We want our life to have weight and meaning and purpose. Are we trying to find it in ourselves, in this world? We're going to end up uh, short. We're going to end up disappointed if we try to define ourselves. So there's something missing. Why? Because we're made in the image of God, which means we're made to be a, a reflection of God. So we can only find glory in Him. We lost that through sin. It can be restored through the cross. Number two, boasting in the cross, finding our identity in the cross of Christ, frees us to be a giver instead of a taker. You see, if we're empty on the inside, we're always going to be looking for stuff and people to fill us up. But if we're full on the inside because we know who we are in Jesus Christ, and we can give to other people. We can serve other people. We don't need other people to prop us up. We don't need their platitudes and their compliments because we're living for an audience of one who gave himself for us. It's the most freeing thing in the world. You want to have a better marriage? Listen, 
marriage of two takers is probably doomed to fail. A marriage of a giver and a taker is doomed to be miserable for one of them. But a marriage of two givers is heaven on earth. You want to have a healthy, enjoyable, God-honoring marriage rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't have time, but it applies to every area of life. Number three, boasting in the cross, finding our identity there, frees us from success going to our head and failure going to our heart, to paraphrase Tim Keller. Listen, if we're insecure, success is going to go to our head and failure is going to go to our heart. But if we're secure in who we are in Christ, whether it's in our ministry, our work, parenting, marriage, and listen, I mean, at times in my life, I've vacillated between the two of those where sometimes success has gone to my head and sometimes failure has gone to my heart. But if, if, if I'm secure in who I am in Christ, I know it's about Jesus. If it's good, praise God, it's a gift from Him. If it's bad, He still loves me. It's okay. It's okay. But listen, if it's about me, if I think I'm doing good, I'm going to get puffed up. If I think I'm not doing good, or if somebody else didn't treat me right, then I'm going to get upset. Listen, you want to know how uh, secure you are in Christ? See how angry you're not. I mean, if, if, if we're always up in the air about something, we probably think the world and people owe us something, and they're not giving it to us. And if you live with low expectations of people and high expectations from God, you'll probably be pretty satisfied with life. Last one, and maybe most importantly, boasting in the cross, finding our identity in the cross frees us to be secure and live with a humble confidence. I've said this a lot, but I think it's really important. I believe only a truly born-again Christian can live with humility and confidence at the same time. Because our confidence is in the Lord, so what ground is there for boasting? See, there's a verse in Galatians 5.26. It says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. But a literal translation, and I've shared this before too, but it's so important. A literal translation of conceited is literally vainglorious. Let us not become empty of glory. Listen, if, if we're looking for glory in the wrong place and we're empty, what's going to happen? We're insecure, so we're going to provoke one another. We're going to, you know, be angry, prideful. You know, that, you know a lot of people that appear to be prideful. They're not really arrogant. They're really insecure at the root. But envying one another. In other words, you don't think you're good enough. You're down on yourself. That kind of thing. You know, when we're insecure, we do dumb things. Is that true? I'll give you an example. When we were in Uganda, we got a family uh, text thread, and I was kind of, you know, texting back first things that happened. I don't know, like the first time I ate goat, first time I took a boat ride on the Nile, uh, first time I ever saw somebody fling their phone into the Nile and the Nile spit it back out. Um, that really happened, something like that. 
But, but this was maybe the most unique first. On the last day, you know, we talked about we took a ferry ride back to try to save some time. But it ended up being a ministry opportunity. We shared the gospel with some people. We passed out some tracts. And uh, some people made professions of faith. But uh, the most unique thing for me is the first time in my life that somebody ever proposed marriage to me. <laughs> that happened on that ferry. And, um, you know, we passed out these tracts. And we're talking to some different people. And there's... Uh, a young lady, she looked like she was in her 20s, that, you know, raised her hand. I thought maybe she had some questions about it. So I went over there, and she's like, will you marry me? <laughs> Which, a little awkward, but I'm trying kind of, honestly, it's kind of funny to me. I'm trying not to laugh. Um, and I'm like, well, you know, I'm already married. And, but then she said this, and it went from funny to pitiful in a second. She said, nobody likes me here. When we're insecure, we do dumb things. But you see, when we know who we are in Christ, we can live with both humility and confidence. See, Matt Chandler puts it this way. I love this. He says, in the kingdom of God, we don't walk with a swagger and we don't walk with a limp. And, and what he means is, we, I mean, there, there's no basis to walk with a swagger. Why? Because anything we are is from Jesus. Anything we are is because he died for us. Because apart from him, we're a hellbound sinner. And we're so messed up that it took the Son of God coming and being tortured and dying on a cross for us to be right with God. What do I have to swagger about? Well, listen to me. I, I mean, some people, you know, struggle with swagger, but more people struggle with limping and, and, and a bad self-image and beating themselves up and tearing themselves down. Listen, in Christ, you don't have any reason to limp either. You're loved. You're accepted. You're forgiven. You're redeemed. You're adopted. You're a child of God. You belong to the king. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Don't demean the sacrifice that Jesus made for you by putting these worldly labels on yourself. See yourself as God sees you. See what his word says as the truest thing about you. Live based on that. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Look to Jesus. Meditate on these verses that say who you are in Christ and live out of that. Claim this identity. Let that be your self-image. Let him set you free and let him make you secure and let him enable you to live with a humble confidence because of who he is and who you are in him. That's how he wants us to live our lives. And listen, if you're not a Christian, just... Be humble enough to be honest with yourself and admit that you fall short. I mean, you're not going to have any trouble saying you're not perfect, but can you admit that you have sinned against the holy God? That you deserve his judgment. But will you see today that he took the judgments you deserve upon himself? That Jesus died for you. That he rose from the dead. And will you turn from your sin and your self-effort and your self-will and turn your life over to him, trusting him and him alone and what Jesus accomplished on the cross to forgive you and to make you new. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I'm going to close in a minute with a song that, that goes along with the message. Before we do that, I just want to ask you, how's God speaking to you? There's some of you this morning... I believe in my heart, you need to get saved today. You need to give your life to Christ. You need to look to Him. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins. Just confess your faith to Him. 
Tell him you know that you've messed up, but you believe that he loves you and that he died for you and that he rose from the dead and that you're giving yourself to him. See, if you've got questions about that, I want, to help, I want somebody to help you, you know, through that. As they sing, I'll be standing over at the side. Come talk to me or talk to somebody you know or talk to one of us when we're finished. If you're a Christian, though, what kind of labels have you tagged yourself with? What kind of labels have other people tagged you with today? Through the Word of God, will you take those labels off and replace them with what God says about you? Consider what they sing this morning.